Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Pete Wargent, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on again. You're tuning in from the uh, from the London Bureau, I believe. Uh, I am, and a slightly croaky voice, uh, like everybody else at the moment, or every second person, it seems. I have a bit of a cold, but uh, hopefully I'll pull through. Yeah, hopefully you're all right, mate. Um, a lot of people that I know have been affected by uh, the flu pretty badly this, this season, so... I don't know if their immunity is lower or what have you. So I hope it's not that. And I hope um, you, and, you and the fam can enjoy uh, the time in the UK. Um, mate, today I'm just hoping we can talk a bit about not just property, but also the economy in general, because a lot of people have read in the headlines lately, you know, inflation, interest rates, recession, um, and people are looking at their mortgages and thinking, wow, this is all of a sudden a lot more expensive. Fixed rates are so expensive, banks are hiking rates, the RBA's increased rates, and it all just seems, I guess, a bit negative for a lot of people. And I'm hoping maybe we can look at property um, through your eyes for a little while, but then maybe we'll spend a little bit of time on other asset classes like equities um, and the like. So maybe we can start off in your home ground, which is which is property. And I guess just at the top of the show, like, People are really worried about house prices. I've been seeing, um, you know, economists predict potential falls of up to 20% in Australian house prices as interest rates rise. Maybe we can just talk about some of the indicators that you're looking at and how you see things, not necessarily a bold forecast, but just how you see things playing out throughout the rest of 2022 and into 2023. Yeah, well, I think the, the interesting dynamic or the paradox is that the fundamentals for the housing market are overwhelmingly the strongest we've seen for years. We've got um, immigration coming back. We're finally starting to see some income growth, um, record high employment, uh, nearly half a million job vacancies. Unemployment rate could be somewhere around 3.7 or 3.8 this week when the numbers are out. So that's about the, the lowest in 50 years. So and in terms of supply and demand in the housing market, rental vacancies lowest in, what, 16 years Construction costs have gone through the roof. Um, and the, the, through the pandemic, there was a shift in the average household size, which added to demand. So I guess if you look at all of those things, and also stock for sale actually on the market is about 
below average. So um, all of the fundamentals would appear to be very strong. I guess there's one thing pulling the other direction, and that is um, inflation. And in particular, how that uh, flows through to, as you mentioned, to mortgage rates. And all of, uh, I guess, everything at the moment is about sentiment. Sentiment is very cautious because people have read, uh, well, you know, the cash rate could go to maybe 3% or possibly even higher. A lot of borrowers have never seen a rate hike. And, um, of course, all of the media headlines about prices falling 15 20%. So loads of people sitting on the sidelines. So it's kind of almost the reverse of what we saw 18 months ago when the fundamentals of the housing market appeared to be very weak with all the uncertainty, but lower interest rates uh, drove a boom. Well, now it's almost the, uh, the, the hangover or the other side of that where the fundamentals appear to be strengthening, but um, the sentiment is very low. So you mentioned there that like housing stock is 25% basically of what it, what it was. Um, it, is this something that is typical for when prices, like when we enter a market similar to now, is it typical that we see supply come offline? Like is that, is that something that maybe then shows up prices? Uh, look, it depends on the dynamic. When you, when you get a... Um, when you get a fearful housing market, you tend to see a lot of people starting to list properties, uh, kind of a rush for the exit. And also stock starts piling up because uh, people just aren't buying. And in fact, we did see that um, during the credit squeeze 2017, 2018. If you looked at the stock on the market in places like Western Sydney, it was just piling up and up and up. Um, mm. So at the moment, um, new listings have picked up a little bit, but um, there's still enough uh, transaction happening in the market. So I guess, yeah, currently, um, particularly away from Sydney and Melbourne, stock for sale is very low. Um, Sydney and Melbourne, in a city, there's quite a lot of stock still sitting around. Um, so look, it depends. I think at the moment, there just aren't many forced sellers because even though mortgage rates have increased, they're still historically low. Everybody who wants a job has a job. And I guess through the pandemic, we, we built up the best part of half a trillion dollars in household savings. So there's not many people who've actually been forced to sell. Um, so at the moment, there hasn't been much of a rush for the exits at all. Could could you see that happening? Could you see, you know, with consumer sentiment so low, maybe businesses don't reinvest? Um, just playing devil's, devil's advocate here, um, you know, and we see an increase in um, unemployment uh, over, say, the next three to six months. Um, could you then see, I guess, those house prices coming off as, you know, the bad and doubtful debts start to rise at the banks and so on and so forth? Or is, are we still a long way away from that? Um, yeah, well, look, at the top end of the market, it's already happened. Um, I think, you know, we often get these sort of media headlines saying house prices will fall by, you know, I think I saw NAB saying 18%. But you, I suppose yeah. to drill into that number, just like in the stock market, it's not driven by one, uh, yeah. one sector or one company. Um, if you went to an auction in, say, uh, November last year, you might have had 50 people at the open home and maybe a dozen bidders. Uh, same property now, you know, say a house on the northern beaches in Sydney, you might have maybe half a dozen people at the open home and one bidder. So it's entirely um, possible in many cases that prices are already off by 10 to 15% from where they were at the highs. I guess in the nationally aggregated market, it might only translate to a few percent. Um, but that's um, Sydney and Melbourne and largely in the top quartile of the market. There's lots of parts of the country 
uh, particularly regionally and in cities like Adelaide, where there hasn't really been any decline in prices at all yet. Um, so, look, it's a bit of a two-speed thing. Uh, but, yeah, I think, you know, peak to trough, I think 10 or 15% is quite likely, especially given um, in 2021, I think at the capital city level, there was a 24% increase. So, you know, it wouldn't yeah. be an entirely unreasonable to see prices coming back. So it almost be just back to back to where we were at the beginning of 2021, um, and yeah, I mean, on the equity side of the fence, of course, we see this too, right? In the technology land, uh, in the technology sector, or in certain sectors where valuations were sky high, that those prices have fallen considerably more than the market average, which may only be down five or ten percent, depending on when you cut cut the numbers. And so yeah. we see that all yeah. the time. Right? Absolutely, and I, I think the thing in in the housing market is um, in the top quartile of the market is a relatively much more illiquid sector yeah. of the market. It's far fewer buyers. And often you do see through the cycles in the boom periods, those properties will massively outperform. But then, of course, they come back to earth when there's fewer buyers around. Um, now, over the long run, the price performance might be quite similar, but the journey is more volatile. But we've seen exactly the same with the NASDAQ over the past few years. Um, yeah. Loads of stocks like, um, well, you would know better than I, but the Beyond Meat and Zoom and all of these uh, sort of high growth stocks, um, they massively outperformed for a period and then came back down to earth. Well, that's really what's happened at the top end of the housing market too so far. Um, around the median and lower price points, less volatility, and I guess prices haven't come off as much just yet. Um, th through your platform, Buyers Buyers, are you like getting any, I guess, on-the-ground evidence that suggests certain pockets of Australia, like you said, Melbourne and Sydney are coming off more than, say, some regional places or even Adelaide. Um, are you seeing pockets full, uh, pockets of opportunity or, or are your buyer's agents um, reporting anything interesting back to you? Yeah, for sure. I guess the, the, the main thing that we saw um, early this year, so we had um, an election campaign, which tends to be, um, mm. tends to be put people on the back foot a little bit anyway, and then of course, we started seeing interest rates going up. A lot of um, home buyers, um, they're still, um, people are still getting their finance pre-approval. This is the interesting thing. If you look at housing finance last month, there was still about 32 billion X refinancing for the month. Right. That's extraordinarily high. Um, Pre-pandemic, we were tracking at about 20. So there's a lot wow. of people getting mortgage pre-approvals. But then a lot of the home buyers in particular are just sitting on the sidelines. Um, quite understandably, because I've been reading about uh, potential yeah. drops of 20%, right? So um, I think um, we have seen, though, investors are still active, perhaps surprisingly, you would think. Um, but I, I think, um, well, investors were out of the market for quite a long time. Early in the pandemic, a lot of people sold in a bit of a panic. Um, now investors are starting to come back, I think partly because they're looking for an inflation hedge. If inflation is going to hit 7% this year, it's quite difficult for people with cash and borrowing capacity to sit there and uh, be inflated away. So there's quite a bit of investor activity going on. Um, I'd say it's largely in the lower price points than it was. Uh, not so much sort of uh, bullishness at the top end of the market. Mm. Um, Pete, a lot of times when we hear um, property analysts or economists talk about things, we talk, they talk about like auction clearance rates. And those are, I looked over the last month and we're, we're, we've been looking nationally at say 54% is the latest week. Um, 
and you know the 50s for the past few weeks versus say 76 percent a year ago um how much do you read into that because it seems like at least houses aren't selling as much at auction um uh, yeah that- yeah i mean it, it's a it's definitely a popular um metric because it's um it's real time i guess you, you know it's a bit like reading the football results you get a result reported every um saturday evening i think the, the thing with auction clearance rates is you get a lot of properties withdrawn which can distort the numbers i mean it I suppose the simplest thing to do, if you look at this weekend just gone, in Melbourne, maybe only you know 200 or slightly more properties actually sold on the day. In Sydney, it was actually under 200. Uh, now, some of those properties might sell after the auction, but clearly that's not a very hot market if, if you're not even selling 200 properties on a weekend. So I think it, it does give you a good real-time reading. I think the thing sometimes is that those percentages can get a bit distorted. Um, you know, the real estate industry likes to try and put a positive spin on things. I think if you actually looked at the number of auctions that were planned for the week and the number that actually sell, the clearance rate would be quite a lot lower. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that they're definitely worth watching uh, uh, for sort of real time indicators. But just like in the stock market, you wouldn't necessarily pay too much attention to headline numbers. You'd look at what's happening with individual companies. And it's mm. the same in property. You know, you look at you know, what's happening in your suburb or property types and, you know, what was the price expectation and what actually happened at the auction under the hammer. Mm. I remember last time we spoke, I think it was, you you mentioned that, you know, you bought in Geelong quite a few years ago when the Ford plant was closing down and there was a lot of fear and uncertainty in that um, regional hub. Um, do you think there are certain markets now around Australia that might be starting to look more like that? Or are we still, again, once, once again, like a bit of way off that, like that was a pretty dark time for um, like Geelong as a regional hub. Um, I guess what I'm getting at with this, Pete, is like, are you yourself looking at certain markets and thinking this is interesting? Um, well, there isn't much in the way of panic at the moment. So, um, there's, there's no sort of standout markets where you're saying, well, that looks really cheap. Um, I think it, probably places like inner city, Brisbane have had cheap units for a number of years, but there's no sort of sort of mass sort of panic selling or anything like that. I think mm-hmm. um, most likely towards the end of the year, you may well find in New South Wales that um, people start looking um, at units and apartments or or potentially houses in the regions, because um, by January, we're expecting stamp duty reform in New South Wales. So um, yeah. I guess, long story short, first time buyers won't have to pay stamp duty, and that is likely to create a burst of activity. Uh, paradoxically, not just from first time buyers, because opportunists will start looking in those price brackets as well. So yeah, but at the moment, I, I wouldn't say... Um, there's been a lot of panic selling or there's not there's not much in the way of distressed sales happening. Um, mm. So hence why I guess a lot of people have got their mortgage pre-approvals, but they're just sitting on the sidelines and waiting to see what plays out. Yeah, it's. I remember, I mean, it's quite different between there and now, um, as in Geelong then versus what we're seeing around the country now. Um, but it's something that I guess a lot of people are watching. And if I could just circle back to one final thing on, um, on this in a kind of, segues into our next topic, which is around lending and debt. Um, rental yields, and you said like fundamentals are really strong around the country now. 
Um, maybe you can just, if you don't mind, just comment on basically what we're seeing in terms of rental increases or rental yields and how that may be offsetting inflation. Uh, yeah, I mean, rents, um, it depends on the market, um, mostly for houses, more so than for units. Um, mm -hmm. There's been pressure on the rental market, which um, I think kind of makes sense. I, I was um, chatting to some friends who live in Brisbane CBD the other day. On uh, They're from um, Iran originally, so uh, they're used to the, the higher density living. But for a lot of the pandemic, they couldn't use the lift, even though they live on level 62 because there was COVID yeah. restrictions and it was two people per lift and da, da, da. You can see then over the past year or two, living in a high density development where you can't really get access to the building very easily and you're almost stuck, um, that's been much less popular. So that the, the pressure on the rental market is largely in houses, often in coastal regions. Um, but yeah, look, asking rents are up 10 to 20%. Um, in some areas, it's a lot more. Sunshine Coast, um, probably more like 30%. Um, so I guess, yeah, I mean, when you're looking at an inflation hedge, rents are definitely rising. Um, residential yields are typically quite low in Australia, but there's, there's some parts of the, the country where you'll get 5%. Um, so, yeah, look, it's it's a bit um, mixed around the country and it's, there's definitely more pressure on houses than apartments because of the, um, I think, because of the COVID dynamic. Mm. It's it's interesting. Imagine being on level sixty two and having to take the stairs. I just don't think I'd go home. I think I'd yeah. I'd just, oh, well, I don't think they did use the stairs, but you just have a very long wait for the lift. And <laughs> I think the thing is, half the time the lift never gets to level sixty two. Um, and you know, you can stick with that sort of thing for a week or two, but you can you can start to understand why the CPDs had such high rental vacancy rates through the pandemic because it was just highly impractical to live in mm. buildings with uh, elevators that you couldn't use. Yeah, well, yeah, I can speak from experience. I was living in an apartment at the time and I did not want to use the, the elevator at all. I was luckily only on the on the first floor. So um, that wasn't too bad for me, but uh, for everyone else, it would have been a bit of an issue. Um, exactly. how about, one of the things, Pete, is that obviously uh, like the talk of lower house prices, even if it's from peak to trough, um, excites some investors who think, well, you know, maybe now I can have my opportunity to get into the market or start an investment portfolio or something like that. But the increase in interest rates also tends to play a part here because lending costs are also higher. So it's interesting that you say, you know, borrowing is up, um, sorry, pre-approval is up. Um, I, I guess maybe there's two questions here is more like around the lending and do you see any risk with rates going higher? I was trying to look at from the, from the equity side, I was trying to look at like the bank net interest margins and any commentary out of the banks recently. And from what I can tell, some of the banks are obviously going to be affected by higher uh, funding costs, especially wholesale funding costs. Um, but for those banks that have lots of TDs on their balance sheet, they tend to be a bit more insulated. But I guess the risk there is rising bad debts and things like that. Like there is a kind of counterpoint. So I guess the counterpoint is here, like do you see higher funding costs being a cause of stress for new borrowers or existing owners as well? Like, do you look at any indicators there? Yeah, well, yeah, there's a few different questions there. So um, let's start with the stress point. I mean, the, the number one indicator of mortgage stress is usually whether or not people have a job. I think, um, yeah. you know, the, there's a very arbitrary measure of mortgage stress, and that's whether or not you spend 30% of your disposable income 
on a mortgage. But you know, let's say when I bought my first place, if if the if the mortgage component of my income went from twenty nine to thirty one. Um, is that really any more stress or do you just cut cut down on one takeaway meal? You know, so yeah. I, I don't think, um, you know, mortgage stress in the sense of people actually defaulting is currently very low. Um, so I guess if you started to see, um, well, if you look at what financial markets are pricing and that's for the cash rate to get towards 3% by year end. So that would be an even faster hiking cycle than 1994 when we saw, what, 275 basis points of hikes in a very short space of time. Um, I think if we got to that kind of level, that would start to create some kind of mortgage stress and maybe some panic selling. Um, Overwhelmingly, um, economists don't believe that financial markets have got that right, and they're seeing a terminal cash rate of somewhere closer to two and a half for Mm. a range of reasons, not least that the inflation isn't really being driven by domestic factors or not predominantly. A lot of it's to do with uh, supply chain issues overseas and energy costs and power Mm. and so on. Um, Also, I think um, what economists are factoring in is that if you get uh, that much tightening so quickly, the impact on the economy is going to be quite, uh, if not devastating, it's certainly going to be a major impact. So, yeah, so I think in terms of when when the housing market might turn around, I think one February next year will be an interesting time because I think what, in absolute terms, interest rates are still relatively low. What people are fearful of um, is an overshoot um, that you just alluded to. I think once the fear goes away, then people might realise, well, okay, well, a cash rate of two or two and a half actually isn't that high and I can start to make confident decisions again. But at the moment, they don't feel able to. Um, on the net interest margin point, well, that's interesting. I mean, if you went back 20 years ago, um, now the major banks have had a bit of an oligopoly in Australia, yeah. but the net, the net interest margin was over three. If you go back yeah. to the Sydney Olympics, say, uh, now it's actually under two, which is the lowest it's ever been. Um, so, look, there's a lot of competition in the market, so particularly on variable mortgage rates. Um, banks like Macquarie are really pushing the majors quite hard. Um, In theory, I guess, rising interest rates should help to normalise things a little bit. Um, So there has been pressure on on margins um, over the past couple of years in particular. Uh, And on the non-performing assets, well, they're currently low. Um, I guess one interesting indicator is I've got a couple of um, appointments with hedge funds at the moment. And I can tell you through experience hedge funds only ever speak to me when the housing market's in a downturn they're not really interested when things are going well but suddenly i get a call when there's you know potential problems or you know non-performing assets so um, mm. I, I guess um if uh, inflation sticks around and um those supply chain issues um continue for a time or maybe uh, higher mortgage rates might and lead to a few more distressed sales and non-performing assets on banks' books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot in there. I think with the banks in particular, if we could shift our focus to equities, um, the the banks tend to be reporting is like the funding costs have gone up, and for some of the banks, CBA is probably the most insulated from this because it's got a higher deposit um, to loan ratio, and and it's got a higher um, deposit rate overall as amongst all Australian banks, and you would expect it to because it's the biggest bank overall, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, those, those historical net interest margins have been falling basically in line with the cash rate for many years. And while the banks have been unable to make acquisitions post-GFC, um, they've been unable to really scratch out kind of meaningful, I guess, gains from that perspective. Um, we've seen them cost out their, their kind of non-lending books uh, through financial advice or insurance, et cetera, uh, which means that that net interest margin is all the more important to those big banks. Um, if, if I could just talk maybe a little bit about the equity side of this and what the interest rates seem to have meant so far is that we've seen some companies come out and basically say, you know, we're going to need raised capital at, at you know, lower, lower valuations, um, which is obviously more onerous on the companies. We're seeing, anecdotally, I've been speaking with companies, whether they be CEOs or management level, and saying that basically, yeah, you know, we're curtailing spending, our marketing dollars just aren't what they used to be because we're mindful of our budgets now. And in particular, in the financial services sector, I'm seeing that too. So that's really interesting. And um, obviously, we've got more speculative asset classes and companies with stretch valuations. Um, they're normally the first to go. We've, we've seen that um, in a big way. Um, one of the things that you and I have spoken about in passing before, Pete, and I know Stephen Moriarty, um, he, he talks about this quite a bit with the um, cyclically adjusted PE ratio or the CAPE ratio, which is from Robert Schiller. Um, the, a lot of people have pointed out from you know, a capital markets perspective that the, the CAPE ratio is still historically very high um, for the United States, it certainly seems to be. Uh, whereas here in Australia, if I just get up my, my data on the US market. So in the US, the CAPE ratio is still sitting around 30, but the long run average is around about 17. And um, you and I have spoken in passing just briefly about this. Um, without, maybe without going into too much specifics, yeah, um, what, what do you make of this, maybe from an, um, an equity yield perspective? Do you, is this something that you monitor closely, this ratio, or do you think about this that much? Yeah, well, I do a little bit because um, I guess uh, like a lot of uh, property market investors, what I tend to do with my excess funds is stick it into an offset account. And then when opportunities come around, I deploy those funds into stocks. Um, so um, Australia's... Um, Cape ratio or market valuation is considerably lower. So, yeah. and I think what you already touched on, I think in Australia, you've really got um, a good tailwind, I think, from commodities, um, but there is potentially some pressure maybe on on banks and real estate at the moment. So, uh, but yeah, certainly from a, if you're looking at it from a Cape perspective, Australia is way lower than the US. Now, um, I think to some, a lot of people would say, well, you know, long run median or mean Cape for the US of 17, 18. Well, you know, some of that data goes back 100 and what 140 years, and maybe isn't that relevant. Um, but 30 is still pretty punchy with all the things that are going on in the world. Um, I think Australia, um, well, we've shown time and again a lot of resilience over the past 30 years and very resources rich. So I think uh, much closer to a historic fair valuation. Um, US, well, I think a lot, you know, from what I understand anyway, I think a lot would depend on whether the Fed starts to pivot away from its uh, hawkish stance. I think um, mm -hmm. we've kind of got used to the Fed pumping the markets over the past uh, 13 years or so. Uh, currently, interest rates on the rise. Um, 
uh, whether that starts to roll over. I mean, certainly financial markets are starting to see interest rates falling again next year. And um, hence why I suppose the CAPE ratio is still pretty high in the US. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously markets are forward looking. And um, yeah, to your point, if you just look at a PE ratio for the Australian market, it looks like it's around average. Um, interestingly, I looked at another market statistic before today's show and of the past 122 years, 81% of those years are positive years. Um, so that's over a very long time horizon. So if we do have a negative years, a negative year in equities, um, that's not uncommon, I guess, if, to use a double negative. It's not, you know, it's, it's normal that, you know, once in every five years, we might expect a negative return. Um, and yeah, to your point, if we look at the CAPE ratio, it goes back a very long way. But if we just take it from, say, the year 2000, um, maybe the cyclically adjusted PE ratio looks more like 25 as opposed to 17, in which case all of a sudden the conversation might change a little bit. Um, but yeah, I was and there's been a lot more, I guess, a lot more in the way of um, unconventional policy. Um, so mm. even if you went back 30 years, you know, CAPE of 25 might be normal for the US. But yeah, I mean, I guess... Um, since uh, certainly since the financial crisis, there's been bond buying programs and alphabet soup of stimulus, and you know maybe market expectations get reset a little bit by that. I, I think, as you said as well, the, the key point is that markets are forward looking, and um, we've already seen, you know, particularly in the VC environment, there's a lot more uh, concern, there's lower valuations, but the stock market will bottom out before the economy does because. Um, yeah, stocks are looking forward to what's coming. So some of the declines that we've seen today would no doubt um, reflect the risk of a recession or the market belief that there could be um, a risk of not achieving the soft landing that the Fed wants to. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, one of the, the forecasts that I look at, um, I don't know if I've told you this before, but one of the forecasts that I look at are you know, the 10-year economic outlooks for Vanguard, BlackRock and the big institutionals. And um, what the, I mean, the, depending on where you go, you might get a slightly different answer. But it, I think Vanguard's point was basically it's not going to be a, you know, a, a lost decade, so to speak. It might just be a decade of lower returns for these risk on asset classes. And um, interestingly enough, from their um, outlook, they've got Australian equities in, in a return band that's probably nearly twice what uh, US equities were based on valuation. Um, but bonds are higher because obviously we're, we're going to get higher yields going forward. Um, there was a fascinating chart that I looked at, and I think I shared it in the discussion points for today, um, around um, the return. This is a BlackRock chart that shows um, basically global bonds on one axis, and then on the other, you've got global equities. And it is the worst year, starts of the year, this is until the end of May, uh, for global bonds by far, and it's the third worst year for global equities since 1977. Um, so it's been a pretty hard year for a lot of people that are, uh, I guess, um, you know, building portfolios and constructing portfolios. Um, one thing though that I thought was interesting from that, um, re reading that paper, Pete, was that basically what's happened in China and how that might have implications. I don't know if you're following this very closely, but we've had pretty um, harsh lockdowns in China. And on the supply side, that's where a lot of the kind of pain has come from for markets, at least from an inflation perspective. So I don't know if you've uh, had a chance to look at that or factor that into your um, understanding of what's going on in the global economy. Uh, well, yeah, I wouldn't say I follow it closely, but obviously um, 
China's approach to lockdowns, um, it seems doomed to failure to me. And for as long as they keep going back to locking people up in an attempt to stop the spread of a virus, well, it's going to have an ongoing impact. And the same uh, with what's happening in the Ukraine. You know, um, these are issues that are known about, but they could drag on for longer than feared. And I suppose mm. um, that, that is one of the things that's being factored in by markets. I mean, on the other side of the fence, there's a lot of the sort of forward-looking indicators of inflation, things like second-hand goods and so on. Prices seem to be coming off and commodity prices are, are sort of normalising back down again. So I think, um, you know, it feels to me like we're still in transitory inflation um, in that kind of a dynamic. But I suppose what the last six months probably should have taught us is that things can change pretty quickly. And uh, you don't want to get too fixated at any one view because, um, yeah, China's uh, still going with a lot of draconian uh, restrictions, and that's not going to be good for things like freight and supply chains. Mm. Yeah, it is, and it, it, it it's probably that thing that I guess from an investor's perspective, we're just going to be mindful of. Um, I, I I I know from speaking with a few companies here in Australia, where you know they they may have inventory built up on their balance sheet from China, and they you know, for the past two years, they've been ordering ahead of the curve and they've ended up with too much inventory because all of a sudden they can't sell it into the economy by the time it gets here. Um, and that's, you know, we saw that, we've seen that with a few companies building up inventory on their balance sheet or delays in shipping or costs in shipping, crimping margins. Um, so I guess it's just for something for people to be mindful of. Uh, finally, Pete, I guess one thing that I might ask just at, at the end of the show is, um, you know, a lot. There is a, a lot of there are a lot of scary headlines around. Um, you're someone who, basically, made a name for himself, um, being very money smart. You've written books on the topic, uh, and also investing in property and and index funds. And I'm just wondering, um, from someone who kind of gets a lot of data across their desk, uh, have you or are you in a position where you are worried about um, the economy to the extent that? You know, you've changed your investment process or changed your investment strategy uh, in any market way. Not really. No, I think if you were, you know, if you were interviewing Warren Buffett today, what would he say? You know, he said, you know, economists will make forecasts that come and go, and you'll have summer seasons followed by winter seasons. But um, yeah, there's a lot of scary headlines around at the moment. But you know, if the cash rate goes from uh, zero back to two or two and a half percent, well, that's in one sense, that's a good thing because it means the recovery in the economy has been way better than we could have hoped for 18 months ago. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to forget. You know, a lot of people have been very critical of the government, of the central bank. Um, but we were expecting 10% unemployment not that long ago. And yeah. now we're at 3.8, 3.7 or something this week. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, the recovery has been spectacular. Um, yes, there's going to be some pain in the short term in terms of uh, cost of living and inflation. Um, but Australia's um, economy over the past three decades has been pretty resilient. So, yeah, there'll be some uh, a few sort of uh, reverberations and a few earthquakes. But um, I don't see um, you know, that if you're looking at a decade um, ahead, I don't, I don't think there's too much to fear. Um, so uh, not, not too much has changed from my point of view. Yeah, yeah, and and likewise, that's refreshing to know. I mean, we get bombarded with all this information these days. It's um, it can become very overwhelming, particularly for investors that are maybe you know in their first ten or twenty years because they haven't experienced this type of thing before. 
Um, and I, I guess that's what I keep coming back to, Pete, is, you know, um, sure, inflation's uh, interest rates going up. Actually, it's actually just a normal part of the cycle that we experience as investors. And um, from where I sit, like, there's been no change in basically my core investment philosophy, whether that's diversified through index funds and ETFs or if you're going at it um, company by company. Um, it's more of the same. Probably the one part that I've just been mindful on for the past two or three years is um, having too many, too much uh, long duration in a portfolio in terms of the bond side of the portfolio. Um, we've seen that been knocked around a little bit. At the same time, people could have put money in TDs during COVID and got you know, bonus interest from the government um, in effect. And now we're seeing term deposits yielding 3.5%. So those are pretty compelling together with offset accounts. Um, so for once, there's actually something to be positive about. And I remember, to your point about employment, I remember um, seeing some headlines and some video of in the United States um, where people were queuing up for, for, for like rations, basically, uh, in the United States because they were unemployed and they were trying to get their, you know, their tickets and whatever. And that was made all the more worse by social distancing or physical distancing, which then made the lines even longer. So then the... The, the media had to get even wider angles um, in their lenses. And the economy's gone from panic about unemployment to, oh, crap, we're too many people and slow it down. And I think for the most part, you know, the economy's stronger than ever. So um, I'm from where I'm sitting, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm still as optimistic as, as, as I was in the past anyway. Mate, yeah, I, I think you... so. I mean, um, as you said, it's, it's easy to forget just how uncertain things were. If you went back to March or April 2020, this was totally unprecedented. And yet here we are um, just a couple of years down the track and everything is completely turned around. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think um, now media these days, if you write an article saying the next 10 years are probably going to be pretty good, that, that's not going to be any clicks. Um, so a journal that has to produce three articles a week, it's going to be fixed rate mortgage cliff and inflation um, out of control and hyperinflation and spiral. Um, but yeah, I think um, you know, if you, you've already sort of covered off the key points, really, if you've got nicely diversified portfolios, some Aussie stocks, some international stocks and maybe a bond fund and uh, I would say some real estate well you're not going to go too far wrong over the next decade um just a lot of it just comes back to common sense just like you always say yeah yeah absolutely mate I, I know you've got a lot on with um buyers buyers behind the scenes you know um raising capital we talked about it last time um people can head to buyersbuyers.com.au and find Pete on Twitter I'll have all the links in the show notes um Mate, just just quickly, how just on the platform buyers buyers, are you seeing um, like are you still seeing a lot of action in terms of people coming to the platform, engaging with buyers agents, and um, I guess just coming through and, and looking at properties? Um, yes, yeah. I mean, I I think the one thing that's really changed since last year is there's far less urgency. I think um, when people were coming to us in uh, September, October, November last year, just wanted to buy as quickly as possible. Um, now it's much more, you know, just, you know, people are just weighing up opportunities. So there's, um, because people aren't fearful of prices being higher in a week or a month's time. So it, there's still transactions happening in the market, but it's, um, it's a lot more considered and there's no FOMO in the market. And I, I think that will continue for as long as people fear rising mortgage rates. Um, so I penciled in um, Australia Day weekend or 1st of February next year. Um, I think by then people have a much better handle on uh, where the cash rate is going to sort of 
top out for the cycle and they'll have much more confidence then about making uh, what in the end is a big decision for people taking on mortgage. Yeah, it's that uncertainty that is always the, um, the thing that keeps people on the sidelines, right? So once we get a bit more clarity towards the end of the year on rates and inflation, yeah, I, I tend to agree. I don't, know, I don't have a date in mind, but it's, it sounds reasonable to me. Pete Wardrant from Buyers Buyers, mate, thanks for, thanks for taking the time to join me on the show again. Pleasure. Thanks, Owen. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.